Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all the stuff we've got going on over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week we've got Ed Masters on the show, and anyone who's followed him on social media or seen his Ed with a dad cam footage at the EWS and downhill World Cup circuits or just paid much attention to what he's up to at all knows that he's an incredibly funny, charismatic dude who has got a lot of really good stuff to say about the state of gravity racing and what it's like racing both downhill and enduro in the same season, which he's been doing for quite a while now. And so we get into it about all that and just how awesome the 2021 World Cup downhill season was and in doing so get real fired up about watching some more racing in 2022. Talk a bit about Ed's kind of injury plagued 2021 season and how he's doing on his recovery from all that. And I guess I should probably either forewarn or entice you all by saying that this particular episode had a bit of beer involved in the recording of it, somewhat at Ed's encouragement, so it's probably a little looser than your average Bikes and Big Ideas episode, but it's also a lot of fun, and Ed's got a whole bunch of great stuff to say about the sport, and so I think it's a really good one. So let's get right into it with Ed Masters. Well, Eddie, great to have you on. How are you today and where are you today? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I've done a few of these and I kind of wonder why people keep getting me back, but here we are. I am in Queenstown, uh, New Zealand. Um, it's a balmy 30-something degrees um, and I'm doing good. Uh, I've been out on the road bike this morning and um, yeah, a middle, middle-aged man in Lycra. <laughs> And uh, yeah, no, things are, th- things are good though. Like um, I've had a bit of a rough run for the last few months injury-wise. So it's nice to, um, you know, finally feel like you've got some wind back in your sails and things are heading in the right direction. So, um, you know, life's good. I'm, I'm stoked. Yeah, that's, that's all pretty solid. It's uh, about 30-something here as well, but it's uh, Fahrenheit rather than Celsius, a little chillier. Well, but... Um yeah, like I said, great to have you on. And I guess to start off, like you kind of just alluded to there, you didn't have the best go of an injury right in 2021. So let's just sort of start it off from the uh, where the season started. You kind of had what looked like a really horrifying crash at the New Zealand National Champs and um, did a whole lot of damage in that one. Yeah, 2021 was just, it wasn't really the most um, kind year, you could put it that way. But like, I guess in the game that we play, like, you've got to accept that these things kind of happen and sometimes there's certain things that are outside your control. But um, yeah, starting with uh, at our New Zealand National Champs, I just had a crash and um, what would have been like, I mean, it would have been a big crash anyway, but I just like, um, you know, Lady Luck wasn't really on my side. And um, went over the bars and just uh, the initial impact straight on my back onto a rock. And it was basically like, uh, you know, 40 clicks to stop um, like that. There was no rolling. It was just like a direct impact. I ended up breaking like my pelvis in three places, broke like four ribs. Kind of like did some damage to my spine 
did uh, some like internal bleeding, um, some kind of kidney, lung stuff. So a lot of like trauma. <laughs> yeah, that's a laundry list right there. Yeah, yeah, it was. But like, um, so yeah, it was definitely hands down like the biggest crash I'd had in terms of just like uh, straight impact. And yeah, you know, had some nice take homes, like a huge bruise and all that. And I was in hospital for a few days and stuff. Um, and then, yes, but like the funny thing with like that injury was just like, so like all my fractures in my pelvis were stable. Um, you know, I didn't even know I'd broken my ankle until two weeks after. I guess it's like your body prioritizes pain. <laughs> and it, it wasn't until I... Um, and it wasn't until I went in for my two-week checkup on some other stuff that I, like, told the doctors, I was like, my ankle's, like, real sore. Like, and they were like, well, there's nothing wrong with your ankle. And I was like, well, can we just x-ray it just in case? And turns out I'd, like, clean fractured my ankle as well. Um, but, yeah, so it was, like, all those injuries, like, the bizarre thing, like, it was, you know, it was catastrophic in the initial stages of, like, what happened. But then everything healed at the, like... It doesn't heal like uh, one after the other. Everything heals at the same time. So like after about two months, I was kind of um, easing back into getting on the bike, um, which I wouldn't have expected, you know, a couple of days into it because I was like, I was up shit creek. <laughs> yeah, phys- physically, mentally, yeah. Emo- physically, mentally, emotionally. Um but yeah, then two months down the track, I was like, shit, we're, uh, you know, we're a month away from the first World Cup and I'm back riding, like I'm starting to get back into riding. Um, you know, obviously you lose a lot of like strength and stuff when you're laid up for a while, but, you know, I'm lucky where I live in Queenstown and stuff that we've got, you know, some of the world's, if not the world's best trails on your doorstep and a bike park and everything, all the tools to be able to get back up to speed um quickly so that like yeah that went really well in the sense that um you know from initial crash three months down the track i was uh ready to fly to europe and race the first world cup which i would never have like expected um which was cool (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean you turned that around remarkably quickly it seemed from where i was sitting you know didn't really imagine you'd be ready for that first one in in Leah gang but then there you were it was quite weird because like um the i'd never really had well like that crash that i had kind of like messed me up a bit more mentally than physically where i was like i wasn't really i was kind of scared of riding my downhill bike um i didn't you know like it's like it's not like you're having nightmares or something but like when i was getting back into riding I'd be like dropping in and I was like oh I could have a huge crash here oh I could have a huge crash there um and that's not really what you want to think (laughs) when you're meant to race your bike um so yeah so like um and I think the saving grace for me and was that like so I just I didn't ride any tech stuff like we've got like gnarly you know like world cup level stuff right on our doorstep but I just rode like flow tracks and rode my trail bike and stuff and rode stuff that was like confidence inspiring where like you kind of feel like you're actually good rather than like trying to trying to trying to rattle your way through a rock garden and just being like this sucks I suck 
you know, and getting all negative. Um, and then, yeah, that first, we went to that not a race thing in Schladming, which is just like, um, it's like an open weekend of, you know, there's, there's no winner. Well, there are, obviously there is a winner who puts down the fastest time, but you can, um, you just turn up and you just can throw down um, time runs with a pretty deep field. Um, and we went there and I was like, you know, the first, I think we did three days of time runs. And, um, you know, the first day I was, you know, wherever, mid-pack or something. And then the next day I was able to knock like three seconds off my, and it was only down a two-minute two track. Next day I was able to off knock like three minute, three seconds off my time. And then the next day I was able to knock like another three. And I was like, shit, I'm starting to feel like I can do it, you know? Like you, I was getting uh, in my head, I was I was getting like back into the groove and uh, yeah, so it was just like a combination of things going right and having like the right kind of like environment to bounce back from like, like even though it was like physically a traumatic injury, it was like the biggest thing for me was like, it made me, you know, it, it put me in like a, I was starting to question like, do I really like doing this? Like, you know, it keep this, this thing that I love, this bike, it just keeps messing me up. <laughs> And then things went things went really well, and like we'll talk about like my next injury after this, which is like which is the complete polar opposite, which is funny, but it's good to it's I mean for people listening, it might be interesting to like hear you know my side of like how you've got like two injuries and you get put out for a while, but like they're like completely opposite when it when you're taking in like the mental side of things. Yeah, I mean, like you've been saying, the recovery from an injury is both physical and a mental one when what you're trying to get back to is going real fast and pushing a bike hard. And it's cool that, I guess it sounds like that not a race was pretty instrumental in kind of getting you back up to speed just from the mental side of it on the the big bike. Because, I mean, we didn't quite get to this yet, but, you know, you then showed up to the first World Cup and finished, what was it, 11th? Like, you had a great result shockingly quickly after completely destroying yourself in in that first crash and so it's just funny like um you know like talking to people at the race and stuff and like everyone you know like so many people have gone through similar things and it's like um you know that one result or like one uh pinpoint moment can be like the catalyst and it can change like the course of like everything so like you know, like let's say, like you'd slid out, slid out in qualies at Leo Gang or something. All of a sudden, your whole trajectory that you were on is heading down like a different path because you're like, "Fuck!" Like now, I've yeah, it's yeah, it's quite, it's quite hard, to, it's quite hard to like put into words. But um, yeah, but like that's what I mean. It's like you know, there is an element of luck that like comes into like the stuff that we do because sometimes things especially like when tracks change and stuff and that's like or just like you know there's stuff that happens outside of your control and like sometimes things don't go your way and then like I like what we're like talking about now is like yes things didn't go my way at the start but like to get back to where I got to in such a quick amount of time it was like a sequential uh you know things going my way (laughs) I'd be curious to hear some more about just what it was about being at the Nada race that kind of got you back in the groove, so to speak, or 
because like you were saying, you hadn't even spent a lot of time on the DH bike before that. And what turned it around? Uh, well, I guess like being at a race with like a high caliber field, but like also not having the pressure. So like I was, I was trying to do like, I was treating the, we like, we call them RRDs, like replica race days. We, we just call it like, that's what we, when we go and train for enduro or something, we'll just play around and do like a RRD where you go and do a whole load of climbing and you won't even time it, but you know, just like pretend like you're doing a race and uh you know like that not a race was good where i was doing even though every run you do is timed i was doing like three runs which i would do you know on the morning of qualies i might do two or three runs and then i'll do my finals run so i was was trying to like mimic each day to like get back into the swing of things but even i was like you know, like we might only do one quality run, but at a not a, you know, on the quality day as such, at not a race, you do like three. But you're just like, you don't have the pressure of, you know, being in the start gate or like all that stuff. Um, but you also have the benchmark of being able to compare your time to some really good riders, which like, because, you know, unless you're, Unless you're protected at a World Cup, your first your quali run is your it's your first race run because you've got to get it and you've got to get into the race. Um, right. Yeah. So unless like when you're protected, like if you've got protection status, like life's easy. You can you can race for points. Whereas um, if you're outside the top twenty in the overall, you're racing for the chance to race again. Um, which which like throws a, like a completely different dynamic on the way you ride because like and like for someone like me because like I chop and change between downhill and enduro it's not very often that it, like um, like I've been protected a lot but like it won't be a, a lot of the time I won't be protected like all season um, so I I know what it's like on both sides of the fence and when you're protected it's like there's a lot less pressure in that quality run and then. It makes it so much easier to maintain your protection status because you can just put down a run with not as much pressure, but you can also like race really hard because it doesn't matter if you make a small mistake, um, you're still in the final, and then it makes it so it's so much easier to like accumulate points because you you can always qualify like inside the top twenty. You're getting those ten. 15 points and it just accumulates whereas like qualifying in 35th or something I mean finishing the final in 35th gives you 25 points and qualifying inside the top 20 like you can get those 20 points pretty easy so it's like yeah it's quite yeah if if you don't have that pressure it makes it a lot easier and I guess that's we kind of like had a tangent a bit there, but no, that was good though. I mean, so I, I, to sort of tease out what you're saying, like if I'm getting this right, you're saying kind of that if you're protected, you can treat qualifying as something where you can kind of go more all out. And if you happen to crash or have a mistake or something, you're still in the finals. It's fine. You don't, you're not throwing anything away particularly. And so you can just go flat out for it. Whereas, if you're not protected, you're having to play a little bit more of a game in terms of balancing, going fast enough to qualify, but making sure that you don't do anything that 
boots you out of it. And- yeah, and it can it can be like you know, like especially with the way that the sport has gone, where we're talking like you know you've got ten guys on a second because that's kind of the general direction that it's headed. Um, you know, in your qualifying run, it can be you know if you back off in like a rocky section that you could pick up a flat or something you're only backing off like five percent but it like it can be the make it, you know mentally it's like oh sweet i'm not gonna like hit a square edge really hard but in your finals run you would but then if you've got that protection status you'll hit it as hard as you would in your finals that, that makes a lot of sense and you kind of seen that playing out in a bunch of different interesting ways over the season like i think watching Valley's progression over the course of the last season was kind of an interesting case in that where it seemed like early on she was going super hard and going really fast until she crashed. And then you could see a couple where it looked like she was sort of trying to hedge a little bit more and make sure she stayed on the bike, but then as just wasn't going near as quick and kind of finished off the pace a little bit. And then, well... <laughs> put it all together at the end with the awfully dramatic end of the season. But it baffles me how like, um, I mean, I, I think like the sport of downhill like lends itself to like a, a, I'm not saying like maturity in terms of like age, but it's maturity in terms of like as a racer. Um, because you've got like so many guys who can, yeah, they can win like even, even De, like Deprella. Like the season was crazy. It was uh, his run at Leo Gang. He was up by three seconds in the first minute and fifty seconds, which is like made no sense. I was absolutely floored by that one. He will learn from like throwing down that run that he, you know, he didn't. Well, maybe it might have been like he couldn't maintain the intensity or the adrenaline or stuff. But you know how he started making mistakes at the bottom, but um. You know, like every run like that, he'll learn something, and then, and like luck, luck, and a lot of things didn't go his way at the end of the season. But um, you know, like a young guy like him will take that and build on it, and then because a lot of people like with um, how Vergier kind of lost it and Bruni won it, um, it was like people kind of forget that Bruni had been in that position a lot before. So like he had the maturity, whereas Loris had all the pressure. Bruni just had to execute. Yeah. Loic was exactly the guy I was going to bring up as the like just perfect example of having gained that race maturity that you were just talking about where kind of came close a couple times and got it all figured out and just seems absolutely ice water in his veins at this point. And just fully on lock when it's go time. Mm. And there's, but like, yeah, everyone forgets that like, there's been a lot of times where like Loic had been, the shoe had been on the other foot and uh, it kind of hadn't gone his way, but it's like all those little trials and tribulations and little hiccups were what made him like the Iceman. <laughs> and you could just tell like looking in his eyes and the, I was, cause I wasn't at Snowshoe, I was watching it live. I was just like, you know, this guy, this guy is not fucking around. <laughs> no, that was quite an end of the season in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was a real roller coaster, but um, 
very cool for like riders, fans, everyone. It was, you know, it only elevates the sport when you've got all that kind of stuff going on. Yeah, it was super exciting, and I guess I'd be curious. This is <laughs> just to derail this even further, and I guess at this point, I'd be curious for your thoughts on like, from where I'm sitting. It seems like the, just the field is deeper than it's ever been in a while, and there are more guys who are and women like both sides of the this, of the uh, breakdown there who are in a position to win any given race, and it just feels like everything is tighter in terms of margins and times. And there are way more people who are in contention than there were pretty recently, even just, you know, five or six years ago, maybe. And think I'm right about that or am I losing it? No, no, no. I reckon you're a hundred percent right. And I think like, I mean, this, obviously this is only like opinion or speculation, whatever, but I think, um, I think the difference now is like previous to let's say four years ago, uh, if you wanted to win a World Cup over, like my thing that I say to people is like you've got to have good suspension tires and brakes to go fast. Most frame designs and stuff, like no one's riding an orange triple two. Let's be honest. <laughs> like, but like seriously, a company can put a horse link in a bike or you know like a proven linkage and make a race winning frame. Um, but up until about four years ago, like if you're, if you weren't on a factory team that wasn't backed by rock shocks or Fox, you're kind of pushing shit uphill in terms of like being able to be competitive for like, let's, and I'm talking like winning a world cup overall or winning races. Um, so like the group of people that were in that circle, we're talking, yeah, I'm thinking like Venn diagram. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, and then now we've got, um, now you've got so many different people, you know, uh, like Michelin joined the game. You've got uh, Olin's, you know, Bruni's winning on Olin's. You've got all these different manufacturers producing high-end products that people can win on and it's opened up the door for... You know where there was ten, now there's twenty, who have who mm-hmm. all have who all have the tools to be competitive. That's an interesting take on it, um, but yeah, no, I think that checks out. Like, I I hadn't quite thought about it in that framing before, but no, I think you're totally right that there are more just bikes and products generally out there that are good and that. There's much less like it's not to say that all, everything is the same, but that like I mean, this is sort of something that we think about a lot from the business of being in reviewing this stuff is that like it increasingly feels like it's the case where if you're comparing a bunch of bikes within a given class, you're no longer classifying in, them into like this one's good. This one kind of sucks. And it's much more a matter of more subtle nuances and these are the particular things that this bike does well this other bike is still a good bike it just does slightly different things especially well in making a little bit more compromises in other spots and so it's kind of much more subtle distinctions there and so yeah that that kind of resonates i I hear that but it's certainly been cool just in terms of seeing the results because the racing's been absolutely incredible 
what I just said before, you know, like mountain biking is more accessible than ever, um, than it ever has been because like when I was growing up and it, it's, it's like a double-edged sword because when I was growing up, the only way for me to ride downhill was to go to a race. Um, whereas now you've got bike parks, you know, shuttle days, everything. Um, so part of that accessibility might turn, turn like would be world champs away from like the race course and just into like fun riding, but it also will mean that there's some would be world champs out there who can hone their skills. Um, so now you've got this like young breed of kids who just have, I mean, you don't have to look at Cade, <laughs> like Cade Edwards, like never seen him pedal up a hill, but I guarantee he's probably good at it too. Yeah. So, and the, you know, and Jackson Goldstone, you've got these like young phenoms. Like I was super impressed with Jackson Goldstone. Cause I was like, you know, I'd only met him a few times, but I was blown away by how he turned up and, you know, essentially dominated the junior category in his first year, um, which I wasn't expecting him to do. But he can also like flip whip and, you know, <laughs> yeah. So like now you've got these dudes who are like seriously skilled, and it's because they've like been able to ride and ride and ride and ride and ride. I guess. Yeah, that certainly helps. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. and then like everyone's like, oh, Jackson dominated, but you've got to like in his category, the two other guys behind him were also first year junior, um, like Jordan Williams and the, the Kiwi Lockie Stevens McNabb, and they're only just nipping at his heels. So like now you've got three guys who have a whole other year in the junior category who are already like knocking on the door of top 20 elite times. Jackson had a couple of races where he would have been top 20 elite, yeah. And then when you put them into the elites, three enter, but three don't leave. Yeah. Yeah, so like the pool of top 20 caliber riders grows by three, but never, it doesn't go down by three. So it's not, it's not like, it's not like a, a one in, one out policy when you're at a maxed out club. <laughs> it's it's open it's open door if you're fast come in damn yeah this is just making me more excited for the season to get going what have we got about two months at this point yeah no it should be um uh, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see that they've gone to lords in march because like last time we were there in april um there was like one instance where the track was completely snowed under so yeah i don't know who's making the calls and it's like it's not uh, the kind of terrain that you want to be riding in slush or snowmelt. It's like the rock. The rock is like slate, so it's like plate-sized stuff to slide yeah. slide on. There's no grip. Right. There's no edges to catch on. It's just. It's like clay. Uh, yeah. There's the. I think Tommy C had like a highlight reel of this one section called the wall, and I remember um, you'd literally practice the top half of the track which was like somewhat rideable obviously you're slip sliding around and then you get to this line and there'd be like 20 guys in front of you and it's <laughs> you just wait your turn to see if you can make it down the wall before carrying on your run and uh you might be 10 back so you can't see 
like the carnage that's going on. <laughs> but you can hear like everyone going, whoa. <laughs> and you just like, uh, you know, you're, it's like you're awaiting your fate. <laughs> and you, there's no way you can like bypass the section. You have to ride down it. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't think I don't think I'm going to Lords just with our because uh, we can't um, come home with our quarantine and the way right. the COVID saga. We won't even get into it, but um, so I prob- my se- my downhill season will probably start at Fort William, but um, yeah, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. Like I really hope for the riders' sake because it's an epic track. It's like. You know, it's right up there with probably one of my favorite tracks, apart from the deadly um, funicular like lift that they take you up, which you feel like you're about to, the cables are going to snap and slide down the hill. But um, no, I hope the weather plays ball because um, it's a hell of a racetrack to start the season on. Yeah, well, I guess just fingers crossed that the weather cooperates and uh, looking forward to seeing how that goes. But to bring it back now to uh, your 2021 with that lengthy digression we just did, which I think was great. But so, yeah, try to keep this a little more focused now. Nah, we don't need to. I'm kidding. It's fine. But anyway, so like you were saying, you know, you managed to come back, had a good result at Leo Gang first World Cup. And then, um, well, you touched on this already, but then uh, had just another rough looking injury at Marabor and kind of put an end to things but um tell us about what happened yeah so like that's what i was saying is like um oh so i'll just explain the crash that i had basically last practice run before finals at maribor um which of like to put it in perspective like uh for me the hardest the worst run of the weekend is your first run on finals day because uh, you've done qualies, which is like at race pace, and then the next run, and I, I think all racers would probably agree with me, it's like that's the, the shittest run because um, like you never want to race waste a run at a World Cup. Like it's like there's no keep doing more because it's like it's quality over quantity. So um, you never you never see guys doing like your first day of practice will be five runs, which might include two time training runs. And then qualies, you'll have two practice runs and a quality run. And then race day, you'll do two practice runs and finals. But the, the thing about your finals morning run, the first one, is that the last run you did on the course was like at full speed. But then there's, you've slept 12 hours, it's morning and you've got to roll up there and you've got to kind of like drop in and go, well, you don't want to wa- waste a run. So you you got to light it up, but like you're not warm or anything, you know, it's straight in and sometimes the light's patchy. So it's a bit of a vortex, like you're like, whoa, <laughs> it takes you by guard. So then the second run on finals day is like, that's what you try and do a carbon copy like you know like this is i'm gonna this is how i'm gonna do my race run because like the first one's always a bit hard um often it, people will stop and just gather their thoughts because you when you drop when you drop in cold to 60 k's an hour trees and stuff it's just it's a bit intense um but yeah so like my i was on my second run um on finals morning and i just messed up 
I was just doing a line and I didn't quite get it. It was near the bottom of the course. And I didn't quite get it how I wanted, but there was nothing really after that point that was technical. It was just kind of, it was more bike parky style. So there's no, there was nothing like after that point um, that was technical. Uh, so I'd messed, I'd messed like, not messed up, but I'd like hadn't got the section as good as I'd wanted to. But f- from there, my like mind was already in the pits because I was just essentially like rolling down the track and uh, going across this off camera, like sitting down. And the thing that you tell people when they're first getting into riding is like level pedals. <laughs> and I was just cruising along. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, yeah, just cruising along and then you know, coasting with a foot down and you're still going fast, but like in terms of the speed that you would normally hit that section, you're going slow. Um, and just went to kind of like do a little seat bounce over what would be like a meter and a half little hole. Um, and you know, obviously with the lapse of concentration or think about saying else, my pedal was down and just clipped a pedal doing like a jokey seat bounce. And just rode rode the front wheel for a while, and just uh, went over the bars into like a hole and into an up face, and just like yeah, waxed myself. <laughs> Those ones where you're not pinning it and just out, just cruising, and kind of lose concentration for a moment are so often the worst. It was it was like honestly, it was just like JRA, just riding along. Like I wasn't. Yeah, you know, like there's certain there's Maribel's got one of the gnarliest rock gardens. There's so many parts on that track, and uh, I was essentially just going from point A to point B, <laughs> and just took myself out. But that's why, like, uh, what I was saying before, um, like mentally, a crash like that it hasn't like deterred me or anything because it was like it was just a shitty <laughs> shitty mistake on my part it wasn't like lack of skill it wasn't riding above my limit um and obviously like from the injury it's taken a long time but uh you know it sits well with me as like a rider that uh you know for one i won't be coast i will never ride pedal down at a world cup again <laughs> and yeah, and and uh, if you're on course, then your brain's got to be on course as well. Like two things to take from it. Um, but it's not like like how I was saying with my crash that I had at national champs, where I was like a little bit scared and like fear kind of came into it. Um, for this, it's like you know that was just a brain fart, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like there's no one else to blame. You know, it wasn't like my bike snapped and I'm worried about it snapping again or something like that. It was just uh, a bit of a shitter. <laughs> yeah, the mental aspect of that is interesting. It's like these things happen, but somehow having an explanation for it that is just like dumb shit happens sometimes. I wasn't paying attention. Makes it kind of easier to get over in some way. My worst crash from last year was exact like same kind of thing is home trails that I ride absolutely all the time kind of a pretty long climb to get up to the spot I was at. And there's a little bit of a traverse before you actually drop into the real trail. And it's like, it's you're pointed back downhill for a second, but it's not steep. There's nothing happening. 
just like wasn't paying attention, took a pedal stroke, clipped a little stump on the side of the trail and was just on the ground immediately. And like was mostly fine. Hyperextended my elbow enough that I was off the bike for a couple of weeks, but it wasn't anything that bad. But like just the same kind of thing of like the dumbest, lamest little bit of trail, but a little little laps and you're on the ground <laughs> yeah it's the pedal the pedal clip is just the worst oh it's this it's this yeah it's no good <laughs> it's no good well so the, anyway back to yours though yeah so i crashed uh and then um yeah initially just like yeah massive impact winded blah 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 they freak out they put you in a spine board and then i was like needles was there and i was like needles i'm all good like get this get me out of this shit i can like walk down um and yeah so he was like yeah he sussed that out greg was there he was all good um you know i didn't hit my head or anything i like didn't have any concussion or anything i was just like winded um really badly and then uh yeah so needles helped me down with my bike shout out to needles um and yeah and just like you know, 10 minutes into the walk, I was like, fuck, my shoulder is bloody sore. Um, you're already starting to do the wing thing where you're just like, ow. Um, so went down and then, yeah, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie had already crashed in qualies. He was busted up. He was like, oh no, my team's falling apart. <laughs> um, yeah. So he cut my jersey off and just went to hospital, had his, uh, x-ray, um, I'd broken like a bone in my chest called like the coracoid, um, which is like, they reckon it's quite hard to break. It's just like a big impact. And then um, I'd separated my shoulder, like AC joint into like a grade five, which like needs surgery. Um, and like most mountain bikers don't even know it, but they've got like separated shoulders just from crashing. Um, but yeah, not most depends on like the severity of it, but like most ACs you can rehab without surgery. But my one was like, you know, my shoulder was a few inches below the other one. Um, and I was like, uh, I'm not that keen to get surgery in Maribor. No offense to Slovenia, but um, we were heading back to Morzane, so I was like, and the doctor was like, uh, you can have surgery somewhere else. So I was like, Okay, I'll take that as a hint. Um, <laughs> I'll get to yeah. So I was like, I'll just suck up painkillers because it wasn't like crazy pain. It was just like it needed to be addressed in the next week or so. And then drove back to Morzine. Had Bernie Bernie had had surgery in like a hospital in Animas, which is just out of Geneva, um, and word on the street was that they had like an arm unit so they specialize in like anything wing limb um type stuff so i was like sweet you know we have like comprehensive health insurance to be able to race um new zealand's really good with it we're like if you don't have yeah they won't issue your race license unless you have the insurance that they say which is which is a great way to do it because it means like there'll be no kiwis racing under a cycling new zealand license and uninsured um, so I just rolled into Animas and, um, you know, paid my little deposit and then was seen by a doctor and they like did the, saw the x-rays. They're like, sweet. Yep. 
you've separated your shoulder and you've broken your thing, um, yep, we'll bang a screw in there and then we'll do this procedure. And I was like, mint, all good. And then they knocked me out, cut me open, woke up in hospital, got picked up the next morning. I was like, oh, just like too easy. <laughs> yeah, just like, I was like, this is mint. It was my birthday that day. We went back, had a few beers. It was sweet. And so like Laura, who is the Santa Cruz physio, she um, she knows a lot of really um, like highly acclaimed surgeons in the UK. And I was like, the thing for me is that I wouldn't be going back to Morzine after that point. So like my checkups that I was meant to have, um, I was like, oh, can I, I'll just go in and get an x-ray wherever I am and then I'll send it through to um, these guys that Laura's put me in touch with and they can like consult remotely type thing just to make sure everything's going all good. And then so I sent through my first ones and the guy's like, oh, that's like a random way that they've fixed that. <laughs> I was like, okay, first red flag. And he's like, oh, well, just for peace of mind, which you will want, um, we'll get you to come to the UK and we'll just do some scans and make sure that the none of these pins, because it looked like quite a barbaric way that they'd gone about fixing my shoulder. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, it was not the clean cut kind of way that you'd imagine a surgery would be, especially with the staples and stuff. Um, but I went, I flew, so I flew to Manchester, got it checked out. He was like, yeah, all good. Um, he's like, we haven't done that. We don't do, haven't done that technique for a while, um, but it will heal, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I don't have any concern of the way they've done it. It's just a bit of a, I don't know, it's just been taken to with a meat cleaver type thing um and then so i flew back to the um met up with the enduro guys at crans montana but like the whole time i'd like this lump in my back which i could feel underneath was one of the pins that they'd put through to like hold my shoulder blade hold my shoulder blade up it was just like each day was just becoming more and more pronounced out of my back and then um, I was like, I was telling Walker on stuff. I was like, like it was starting to wake me up at night because I'd like roll on it and it'd ping and then I'd wake up and I was like, this thing is days away from coming out of the skin. And like, sure enough, like wake up one morning and, uh, you know, I've got an inch and a half of nail slash pin just poking out of my back. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, which is another big red flag. So quickly get, thankfully, like the guy that Laura had put me in touch with, Professor Funk, he, I had him on WhatsApp and we were just like, you know, like, it was just like texting your mate. It wasn't like a surgeon thing. So I quickly sent him a picture and he was like, okay, like you need to get that pulled out. Um, go to a hospital. Ideally go back to the original hospital. And I was like, oh, it's not really an option. He's like, oh, if you're game, just pull it out. So, um got some alcohol spray and we spray, sp sprayed down the sprayed down the uh, park tool pliers and um, Matt Walker, my teammate, he pulled this pin out. I can send you the video because it's pretty funny. I can't decide if that sounds like the best or the most horrifying video possible. It, it might be both. It goes both ways, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, he was like, well, there's two pins in there. One of them's come out. 
the other one will still be serving the same purpose. The way that the technique works, it kind of like they've put like a saddle over these two pins and they support the shoulder and hold it up. Um, he's like, the other one will be doing, still serving the same purpose. And I was like, look, I'll come and see you anyway again because um, <laughs> this is kind of a concern for me that this nail has come out of my back. <laughs> I would be worried, and as someone who's got a lot of metal in his knee and ankle, I, I'm going to have nightmares about this now, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, so uh, so I was like, he was like, sweet, come here on Saturday, I'll see you, and we'll just make sure everything's all good. Um, and then we went to Finale, and uh, I just started, I was driving the boys some shuttles um, in the midweek, and uh, I just started getting these like pains down my arm, and I was like, fuck, this is no good. And like Jack Moore had had big problems with infection and stuff with his collarbone. And he was like, he was like, Brazzy, that's getting infected, bruh. <laughs> and I was like, but there was no like signs of redness or anything. And I was like, fuck, all right, I'm going to go. So I just booked the next flight to the UK, which was the next day. And that night I just came down with like, you know, the bed was like soaked with sweat. Uh, just like crazy fever, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to stay in hospital in the and I didn't want to go to hospital in Italy or any country that didn't speak English. <laughs> so got on the train to Nice. Um, got the next flight to Manchester where these my professor or or the doctor was, and then um, was starting to like kind. Of, I was just yeah, just like crazy sweats insane pain i couldn't even like i could barely talk it was starting to get really bad and then um so like the doctor or surgeon he came and saw me straight away like out of hours um and then he was like yep this is infected we need to get you in hospital straight away he called on all his contacts um found me like a bed in a hospital that he does surgery out of and then uh, he was just like, get in an Uber and go there. So I got in an Uber, went and checked in, waited in like the uh, reception for like a couple of hours. And then these doctors came and they were like, are you Edward Masters? And he had organized all the like treatment from there on. So like super lucky to have that hook up. And then they like put me straight on a drip, um, like IV antibiotics, straight into surgery, took all the metal out. It was already going like septic and stuff. Um and then uh, yeah, spent like spent like five days in this in hospital in the like Midlands of England, um, and then I was like, "Fuck!" Now I'm back to square one, because the surgeon who he was like, "Oh, you well, like you're gonna have to have the surgery done again, but we can't do it for two months." So I was like, "Oh, like worst case scenario stuff," but like the. The boss surgeon who I was, who was consulting for me, he was like, nah, there's like, you don't, you won't, like, there's nothing to say you have to have the surgery again because, um, you know, like, if you're a fast healer and you're young and healthy, the three weeks that the metal was in there, it might have been enough to downgrade the separation. So that gave me, like, a glimmer of hope. And then, thankfully, you know, like a few months down the track, uh, it was like decided that I didn't have to have the whole procedure done again, which brings me pretty much up to today. <laughs> Holy shit, man. That's a saga. I did not realize it had gotten quite that dire there. 
but how are you doing now? How are things? Yeah, yeah, sweet. So, I just was like, I was just like, well, I'm just going to give my body like a bunch of time. I said to myself I wasn't going to ride like mountain bikes until after Chris, after the new year. And then, um, yeah, just like got a good team of people who helped me with the rehab and stuff. Um, yeah, and just like taking it slowly. But the worst thing is, is like when something like that's going on, it's like there's so much uncertainty, but everyone's asking you like how it's going. And you're like, oh, well, like, I don't really know. But every, And then everyone kind of thinks that you're not like taking it seriously. But like the fact of the matter is you don't actually know. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, and, and everyone's asking you like, oh, when are you going to ride again? And you're like, well, I might have to have surgery in three weeks and start this whole thing again. Yeah, but so it's like, it's, it's like hard to like explain but all people want to do is ask you how things are going. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, can you not? Because I don't actually know how it's going. But now, today, right here, what is it? The 28th of January, things are going good. Well, I'm very glad to hear that it's turned around. That is quite a year you've had there. 22 is my year, man. 22 is my year. All right, let's get into that then. So... You already mentioned that you're probably not going to make the first World Cup, but what are the plans for 2022? How are you imagining breaking down the kind of DH and Enduro calendars, and what else do you have in mind? Yeah, so I want to race the full EWS calendar. When I race downhill, I want to race... Because it's... The harder thing is when you're juggling both is... My priority is with like the training side of enduro because the the shittest thing is when you go to an AWS and you're not like at you know as as fit as you need to be because it just makes it really hard. So like when I'm during the season, a lot of the time we're just riding our trail bikes, and then um, but then you go to a World Cup and you just hop on your downhill bike and it feels a bit foreign. Uh, so like, I was like, oh, this year I want to, you know, it'd be nice to, when you can race some like back-to-back World Cups and you can like build on, rather than doing like one EWS, one World Cup, one EWS, one World Cup, one EWS, one World Cup. Because like the, the EWS side's easy because like you spend a lot more time on the bike just for the bike time that you need to be fit. So I was like, yeah, like the way the schedule works this year, there's a, there's there's more opportunity to spend a bit more time on your downhill bike leading up or, you know, like in a little block of downhill, um, which I think would be a bit, a bit nicer. And in the past, I've like, I've always done better when you get a bit more time on the DH bike because it's quite frustrating when if you turn up to a World Cup and you come 30th, which on paper is a great, like it's a good result and stuff. But in the back of your head, you're like, oh, if I had that extra week of bike time or just fine tuning or just like confidence, um, you can quickly upgrade that 30th into the top 20. And it's like, you know, a second can just be, it can just come from bike time uh, or just like making those minute little changes that you wouldn't otherwise get if you don't, put in the time on the bike um so the schedule this year like lends itself to like uh doing a bit more time yes yeah, so, and so i'll probably i was mapping out my calendar and i'm probably gonna 
I'll miss the first World Cup and uh, probably, I think it's maybe Andorra. So I'll miss two World Cups and then, yeah, I'll do end up doing a full AWS N6 downhill races, which is sick. It's a lot of racing, but, um, you know, like we don't, we don't live in Europe and stuff. Um, and even when it's a long season, um, I have kind of like a four month thing where I start getting a bit like ready to go home at four months, but the best way to like, the best way to, you know, time travel is just race. <laughs> when you roll week to week. Just makes it fly. Yeah, yeah, it just flies by. And I think like the last two, like, or the last year, when you're, when you're used to breaking up your season with a North American stint, when you take that away, it makes the time feel a lot longer, the block. Um, whereas hopefully this year with like travel restrictions and stuff easing, um, being able to go to Canada and America, uh, it just make, you know, it, it gives you that like new lease on life, kind of breath of fresh air. Um, and the season just rolls through. So pretty psyched on um, the whole year that we've got planned. Um, we have a pretty, we have a lot of fun on the road and it's cool. Like we've got some new, um, some new faces coming onto the team and stuff. Um, and Bernie's always got big plans. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. There'll be, yeah, it's, there's never a dull moment in pivot factory racing, put it that way. No, it, it certainly didn't look like it. And especially from a lot of your dad cam footage from when you were in the pits and hurt and, you know, not on full race program. Uh, those videos were fun. So <laughs> enjoyed that quite a bit. Yeah, I was, I've been a mountain bike nerd fan, whatever you call it, before I was a racer. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go and like hide and lick my wounds. <laughs> like if I've, you know, if you finish racing and stuff, you know, you I'd be like annoyed if I didn't go and watch those races, even if I couldn't partake in them. <laughs> and it's good. It's good. It's fun being trackside when like if you can't race, like I can, I can help my team or my friends or you know, I won't. You know the. You're not going to help everyone, <laughs> but but if you're on my if you're on my list, I'll definitely if I'm tracks if I'm trackside, I'm going to give you like the intel. I, I hear that. Just you're hurt and laid up, and having something to do where you can have some fun and feel like you're being useful goes a long way to making the time go by when you can't be doing what you would necessarily want to be at the first choice on your list i mean there's nothing more fun than just getting in one of sven's shots and getting yelled at you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend it if you're a uh, spectator and you don't know sven <laughs> but if you know him on a personal level then there's nothing more entertaining than uh anno- annoying annoying sven well not actually so much sven it's more boris now boris has taken on the reins as uh the angry photographer yeah, but it's uh, yeah, it's good. I'll file that one away. Ed Bull Media House has a um, hall pass to go wherever he wants. Awesome. I did want to touch a little bit on the subject of racing both a fair bit of downhill and enduro in a season because, like you said, I mean, I have to imagine that it is hard going back and forth between the two different bikes and kind of the different approach that the two disciplines would require too. Like you're 
just having to sort of toggle between two different modes rather than getting to be a hundred percent locked in on one. And, um, do you think there's anything about your approach to either or just bike setup or anything along those lines that you're doing differently by dint of having to kind of cover both bases or are you just sort of able to flip that switch with more ease than you might expect and kind of handle it? I think it's like, I don't know. Cause it, cause like coming, I was always a downhill racer and downhill has always been like the, the first thing, but then on paper, the enduro kind of, I guess all the like skills and stuff, it all kind of like plays in that, um, you know, I've had some really good results in that discipline. Um, and I think, you know, like you might sacrifice a little bit in terms of like results for either discipline, not focusing on one, but at the same time, they complement each other both so well where, um, like even though downhill is such a small, it's such a short, you know, like it's a sprint, it's, you know, four minutes. Um, I'm, I stand by like that you, or just in any terms of sport, like the best guys are the, you're not, you're not like the best guys are the fittest or like the strongest. Um, so it's never, as long as you can maintain strength and stuff like, um, being fit for enduro is only going to help you downhill um, because in, in a sport that's so mental, being able to have like clarity and stuff, if your lungs are burning, that's going to sidetrack you. Um, and then the, the speed and the commitment required for the downhill when you go to enduro, even though it's on like a smaller bike and stuff, the level now is like so high that, uh, that helps, but um, so that's the way I've always looked at it. Um, and also, like like I said, is like uh, you know, like for me, home's halfway. You know, it's the, it's on the other side of the world. It'd be quite hard to go away for five months and only race seven races or six months. Yeah, I'd find myself getting kind of complacent and. And that might also play into, you know, the, then you're putting a lot more pressure on individual races and stuff. So, yeah, I guess if you're, I don't know, I don't, there's no like perfect way to do it, but I enjoy racing both. And I feel like for me, downhill is the pinnacle of bike racing. So to be able to do it, like I can't do it forever, but it's really cool to be able to do it. And I'll, I'm like proud to continue racing while I can because, yeah, there's nothing quite like it. So, yeah. And like, like I said, like as I, you know, I might not race downhill for many, you know, he, you know I don't, I'm, I'm not going to do a Greg Minar. <laughs> but uh, so um, enjoy it. I'm keen to enjoy it while I can. And at the same time, um, I love racing enduro because this, oh, it's really hard. It's really hard to put into words, but it's just, uh, it's such a cool discipline in the sense that, um, you know, as long as everyone's on a, there's, let's say there's an imaginary line and that's like fitness level, 
once you're above that, then you're in the pool where you can play with the big dogs. And then and then it comes down to like bike skill. So like the best the best bike handlers are the ones who are winning the EWS, I reckon. It's uh because Richie, Jack, Jesse, Martin, I'm sure, you know, like Richie's more powerful, Jack's lighter, Jack's probably got, you know, better endurance, but there's, you know, everyone complements each other, but at the end of the day, it's just about riding the bike. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I guess while we're on the subject, just the battle between Richie and Jack last season and how consistently they were so close on times and just trading off one twos was mind blowing. How how did that happen? How do they do that? Well, everyone, everyone's like, Oh, Jack's kind of popped out of nowhere, but like, no, (laughs) no, no, no. Like, so like, he's not popped out of nowhere in terms of like a name, but like, they were like, shit, he's taken to enduro so well, but like, because we had Jack on the Bergamot team back in 2014. And even back then, he, he was like, he's got this crazy natural fitness, his long legs. But the way that he like handles the bike on terrain, like roots and stuff is just like next level. Um, and then work ethic and stuff like that. It's like, um, and then his results, like even when he was on Intense, I think the f- first EWS he did was Rotorua and he got I, I I think leading up until he signed with Canyon he'd never in the four EWSs he'd done he'd never been outside the top 10 so he was like a shoo-in to be competitive from the get-go and then I think um yeah like I said with work ethic and stuff um and just the way that he's got he's so like tall and lanky he just like you watch the way watch how he rides he's like constantly counterbalancing the bike and he can just put it into positions that no one else can and then so like I, I've ridden with Jack heaps and I'm always like baffled with like the way that he rides and but I haven't really ridden with Richie much at all so uh, and I can imagine it's like completely different but at the same time they arrive at the finish line at the same time so it's pretty crazy yeah you know, it's it's amazing like thing of contrasting styles that are arriving at a similar result as far as the stopwatch goes. And you get that in downhill as well. It's like, you've got someone like Greg Minar, who, you know, who's a powerhouse, you know, he looks like the quintessential athlete. And then you've got someone like Danny Hart or Troy Brosnan, who are small, but you, you put them onto the motorway at Fort William and you know, this, let's say Danny and Troy have hit the turn this fraction faster, which gives them a better run into the motorway, but Greg can pedal or he can pump or, you know, and at the, they finish at the same time. So it's like there's no perfect body type. It's all about, at the top level, it's, I mean, it's like mental and just about being able to ride a, mountain bike <laughs> fast <laughs> there's not much else to it but i wish it was that easy when you actually do it yeah that's a a nice distillation of it in words but certainly a, a matter of easier said than done 
Oh, hard out. Yeah. If it was that easy, everyone would be doing it. Yeah. Well, I, I made this joke already um, when I was talking to Nico Mullally on here a little while ago, but uh, my introduction to Richie Rude was, I'm a little older than he is, but I, and uh, we both grew up kind of same part of the world. And um, he was just the young punk kid who showed up on the DH race scene in upstate New York back in the day and just like started absolutely blowing everyone up when he was 13 or 14 or something and just <laughs> was winning junior races all over the place then already. So um, yeah, could tell he was something pretty special already. I kind of don't know why Richie hasn't come back and done, you don't have to do a whole series, but like, like he's junior world champ and stuff. And yeah, it would be sick if he came back and raced uh, a downhill or two because, yeah. And Yeti would be able to make a downhill bike easy. Just call Frank the welder up again and have him do something, you know, get get him back in the fold. I don't know. Do a Nico special. Make it happen, Yeti. Bring back Sinister. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my, bro- my brother rode for Sinister in the early days. Oh, did he? I don't think I knew that. All right. I, I wanted one. Of, I wanted an R9 so bad back in the day. Those were cool. Yeah, yeah. Went, went rode for Sinister for a year. Um, and that when I saw that uh, Nico was doing that stuff, I was like, oh, Frank the Welder. I, yeah, so I knew the whole story. So it's pretty sick. It's a cool project. I can't wait to see. Yeah, he's not going to do He doesn't do anything by halves. So it'll be cool, cool to watch, especially with the video series. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff going on there and very excited to see how it goes. Well, Ed, I should probably let get going here, but uh, before we do, the name of the show is Bikes and Big Ideas after all, so we do like to wrap it up by asking the guests if they have a big idea to share. So anything you got floating around in the head to put out in the world for us? Yes, mountain bike straight rhythm. (laughs) We need it. (laughs) It would be sick. Oh shit! Yeah, like I, like you could do it so easy. Yeah. Uh, so anyone, if anyone at Red Bull is listening, um, let's get a straight rhythm going. We have a steep roll-in into big jumps, close together, so there's no there's no pedaling at all, and uh, yeah, it's just a scrub or send. Uh, it'd be sick. That would be super fun. There we go. Big ideas. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Just, I don't know how we're going to do this, but I am 100% with you on needing to make this happen. Well, like, so, like, I'm thinking, like, you know, like, steep roll, like, you roll in. It's a pro gate, random gate, so there's no snap or anything. You, yeah. just, you just roll out, and then okay. the jumps just get progressively bigger. But at the same time, you've got, like, some whoops. <laughs> And it'd be sick to have, like, near the bottom of the course, like in Leger 2019, like a big sender where it's just never-ending landing. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and it, it's just who's got the balls, death grip type stuff. It'd be sick. Because you've got these, you've got, like, kids and stuff like Finn who can scrub like shit. But I'm interested to see, yeah. like, is a scrub on a mountain bike actually faster than just a squash? Straight rhythm. Let's prove it. I'm in awe. And you had that just absolutely on lock. There was no hesitation there. I love it. Oh, and it was just funny because uh, we were, I don't know, we were in a cafe and just like literally a day ago. 
and uh, they had a replay of straight rhythm on and I was like, you could do this for mountain bikes so easy because you're not actually building two individual courses. You're just building wide jumps. Right. You, you just stretch them. Yeah, yeah, just same, same jumps. They, they only need to be like the lip. Instead of being two meters wide, is five meters wide, and there's a white line in the middle. No, the track building, I totally get. Like, I, I'm just trying to figure out, like, in terms of getting Red Bull to make this happen, what is the pressure campaign that we need to mount now to bring it into the world? It'd be sick. Like, and you can literally run. All you need is a gradual slope at about five percent gradient, and you're on. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't have to be that big. You could build this anywhere. Yeah, yeah, you can take it anywhere and it would be it'd be sick. Wow. That was phenomenal. There we have it. Awesome. Ed, this has been great. Had an awesome time. Just I think that was a bunch of really good insights too into what goes into racing at the top level and had a lot of fun doing it. So thanks for coming on been a pleasure and uh talk to you again soon yeah man cheers that's like that's how it is for me and it definitely isn't how it is for everyone but um definitely happy to open a little window into my thoughts so thanks for having me and giving me a platform to talk some shit (laughs) it was great we'd love to do it again sometime have a good night man anytime that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and if you're enjoying these then we'd really appreciate you giving us a rating in apple podcasts and i want to say thanks to ed for the conversation thanks to taylor ahern for producing the episode and thanks to you for listening from all of us at blister please take good care of yourself and everybody else and we will talk to you again real soon